my parents. Did you have a good day yesterday? I did have a good day yesterday. Did you win your tournament, son? I did win my tournament. Did you get fined again? I did get fined again. <laughs> Don't snorp your orange juice. What did you say? <laughs> I told you before not to slurp your orange juice. You cannot be serious! <laughs> you cannot be serious! I did not slurp my orange juice! I did not slurp my drink! Did I slurp my drink? Did you hear a sound? Did you hear a sound? Tell me! I heard a slurping sound. Jesus Christ, woman! You cannot be serious! I'm gonna bring in Dad. I want to bring in Dad. I want to hear what Dad has to say. Let's bring in Dad. Let's hear what Dad has to say. Did you hear a sound, Patrick? The drink was slurped. Jesus Christ! Why am I surrounded by incompetence? Why is everyone against me? Inching inexorably towards podcast perfection. Uh, my guest this week is a bit of a comedy hero of mine. Um, he really requires no preamble because it is uh, uh, comedian, actor, presenter, Griff Reese Jones. Um, anyone listening to today's episode hoping for a lot of goon related content and chat may be disappointed. Um, Griff did have some things to say about. Well, Spike in particular, and he did appear in the film version of Pacoon. Uh, but it was, to be honest, it was more about looking back at shows like Not the Nine O'Clock News, Elizabeth and Jones, um, which I was really, really keen to do. And I really wanted to talk to him about those. So um, I hope that you know, knowing that the audience for this podcast generally are comedy fans, um, I hope that uh, it will be enjoyable for all. One of my earliest, well, my first memory of you in anything <laughs> do you remember dressing i'm sure you do dressing up as john McEnroe. of course yes yes, yes. yeah that was uh uh that was that was quite early on in not that i got news we did that and um it was one of those things that cable i what was what was funny about doing not that i got news was that um mel and i were sort of the, the ordinary people partly because pamela was this sort of extraordinary glamorous, pulchritudinous sort of comedy <laughs> hero, uh, a rarity in in the, mm. in the comedy world in those days when every time a girl needed to be uh, in a programme, they they dressed a bloke up in fishnet stockings, you know, and sort of got a laugh out of uh, out of drag, you know. Mm. Um, and that was so, it was quite rare. And, and, and Rowan had come from the Planet Blob, so Mel and I were seen as the sort of ordinary-looking ones which was bizarre so and also we would let they'd say well you need you to do it because it's a topical show and we i wasn't an impressionist but i got the job because i was in the first series and i did uh an impersonation of donald sinden mm. uh it was one of the things i did and uh it was partly because i'd done uh old sinden uh about something about churches or something you know 
marvellous English churches. And I'd sort of got around and done it. And uh, so they thought I was an impressionist. So we'd get these things thrown at us. And one of them was John McEnroe. Luckily, luckily quite easy to impersonate, but yeah. some of them were more complicated. Russell Harty, I had to go away and try and learn to do. But when you, when you, when, when you meet John Colshaw and his amazing ability to be such a genius and sort of slipping into people left, right and centre and so funny with him, um, you just think, wow, we were just sort of, we were getting away with it. In fact, when Mel played Eamon uh, Andrews for This Is Your Life, mm. they had to put on an Irish accent and was carrying the red book. They had to put a caption underneath it. <laughs> saying, hey, Andrews, this is your life. His impersonation was so not really sort of Eamon Andrews. But that was what was great, was that that was part of the ethos of making a show like that, is that you it was sort of, sort of funny. It was funny all, all the way. There was so mm. much in it, which was good. That, and we were working. It's great to work in that. And I suppose that's the connection with the Goon Show in a funny way. It's great to work in a team show where yeah. the people in it are, you're entirely and absolutely confident that they're going to be really funny all the time, you know, and they're just, they're at the top of their game. And those combination shows, it doesn't, they come along um, every now and again. The Goon Show, Monty Python, the Frost Report, uh, then not the nine o'clock news, and then uh, the young ones, and then different generations need these sort of ethos shows, and they and they come along. So it's slightly irritating to our generation in a funny way. I mean, I can think of a number of people I know, older than me, who were all slipping to sort of goon show type stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> in order to do things. And you go, oh, no, he's off again. He's, he's on the verge of dropping into Neddy. Um, <laughs> stuff, stuff, almost any, anything he wants to say funny. So so that's the sort of Lego in, in our generation. It was people going, oh, no, no, not the comfy chair. You know, they go off and start yes. doing Monty Python type, you know, stuff. Didn't you make a conscious effort when you were, at Cam when you were doing um, the Cambridge Reviews? Didn't you make a conscious effort one year to, to, to be as far away from Python as possible? Well, well, that became something that, that mm. drifted on through the 70s. Because, partly because, and in fact, when Not the Night News started, that, uh, I don't know, he was quite a big television reviewer, I can't remember, and, and quite a hip guy. Um, he said, these, he started his review by saying, if these wankers want to, you know, and really, the sort of, what you become aware of in comedy is people have incredible antipathy to pretenders to the throne. Mm. They really want to be, it's sort of allegiance thing, you know, that they, they, people are allegiant to sort of a particular ethos, if you like, a bit, with, bit like with bands. And so, you know, people who are outside that thing can be sort of treated with the utmost contempt because it, the first series was quite a shaky series, actually. That's what people don't really remember. Probably yeah. Like um, and it had, uh, it was slightly overindulgent in places and there were sort of errors in it. Uh, and the second series was tightened up and in a funny sort of way, that was my role because John Lloyd had come from a sort of topical and, um, and joke orientated, uh, doing the headlines and things like that, radio mm -hmm. band, bringing yep. with him a lot of writers. Colin Bostock-Smith, Laurie Rowley, some of whom became very famous, like David Rennick, you know. Um, He's been on. What? He's been on here. 
Oh well, you well, David is a great mm. is a great uh, great great writer mm. and an unlikely great writer, isn't he? In a funny sort of way, because <laughs> <laughs> you don't think of David as being one of the funniest people that you'd sort of bump into in a funny way, though he's very dry, very he? unassuming, isn't he? Very unassuming, yeah. Mm. So all these guys were already close to John, but all through that period, there were things like the Burkis way. Mm. Remember the Burkis way? Yes. yes. Slightly indistinguishable from Python-esque humour. It, it, yeah. it was kind of in between. Would it would it be in between Python and I'm sorry, I'll read that again? Yeah, a little bit. That's mm. a very good definition of it because mm. it had Chris Emmett and people like that. In mm. it. It, was very, it was very well done and brilliantly written, but it sort of had, it just had that odd reference, that odd feel to it. Just the flavour of being Python-esque. My mate Douglas Adams, you know, yeah. who I was in uh, in for lights at the same time as him, and he and Adam Smith Adams and uh, uh, Martin Smith, um, you know, they they did sort of vaguely Pythonesque sketches, you know. Um, so I remember we did the great sketch written by Douglas called the the Paranoid Society, which was always a fantastic sketch to do. We carried on doing it on stage, mm. <laughs> but it was it was quite a Pythonesque sort of thing so what john did was break the mold a bit by saying no there are lots of writers who write great gags uh and topical stuff requires great gags and we will be a gag show and we'll be a short show so um the sort of lengthy sketches that that's for the reason people ask you know why well, chris langham you were so brilliant and all that mm. sort of stuff but i think that what was happening was that chris and john were arguing about the sort of it was John was old ex public school gag silly. I mean, crazily surreal man. I mean, I used to do a monologue which he wrote, called, which was about sort of punting on the somewhere a toad farted, and it was just it was uh, it was sort of like he had a wonderful sort of um, uh, sort of obsession with with words, John, uh, and that some words were sort of funny. And that's what he and Douglas did when they wrote together, was sit down and work out which was the funniest word. <laughs> and you can salute them. Absolutely. It was the, honestly, the honestly, the sort of the sort of working on lines and comedy. And when, when we're doing normal like reviews, we'd rewrite lines for remember. But, but but there was a sort of there was a there was a sharpness that John wanted. And I came in, I came from the same background as him, radio mm. comedy. I came, I knew all these writers, and I wanted to elevate them, and he wanted them in the show. And uh, I think that he needed me to back him up on how good these, you know, because there was a sort of, oh, isn't this a bit too much of a joke? Yeah. You know, yeah. People can have a thing where they go, this feels a little bit too much like a, an old joke. And there's nothing like a, a great new joke to sound like an old joke. You know what I mean? Um, there's a funny, it's a bit like, you know, um, people think that really jokes sort of are written by some committee out in you know somewhere in the city or something like that and they emanate through from van drivers or something like that and then everybody's repeating them they're in the public domain mm. it's quite interesting to realize that in the 70s that had sort of faded away a bit because python had been not a punchline no not, yeah a silly idea but not a punchline sketch reintroduced the punchline sketch with not like news and the writers to write them who had that sort of capability of delivering that sort of stuff. And that's what gave Not an Icon News its punch and its feeling of being very different from Python. Yeah, I mean, look at you look at the chemist shop sketch. Could yeah. you imagine? I mean, that seems like that should be an old gag. 
Good afternoon. Can I help you, sir? Yes, I would like some deodorant, please. Ball or aerosol? Neither. I want it for my armpits. I think it is an old gag. Oh, is it an old gag? I mean, it seriously was. I mean, I think it's now been identified <laughs> as being an old gag, but it doesn't matter. Okay. I remember doing a sketch which I did, which was the um, the coffee one, right? You know, the coffee... Uh, the sort Making of... the noises, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, um, uh, Ned Sherin pointed out that that very same sketch had been done by Max Adrian in a review in the 1960s, you know, um, halfway up my lettuce or whatever it was, you know. And so, you know, you go, OK, so we stole that joke and sent it in. But there were other jokes which people wrote which were so contemporary that they weren't old jokes, you know, like the, somebody going to the um, fill up a petrol to try and get it to exactly the five pound thing and then it goes clunk over and there's a man inside the that was written by a friend of mine called rick cooper you know yeah. so there were lots of people fake thinking of gags and sending them in and we were doing them and that was fantastic uh, obviously you know i wanted to to touch on the the res of this podcast is is you know it, it's jumping off point is the goons okay and i know that um you didn't have any sort of direct involvement with spike or did you well did you ever meet spike in any capacity no no okay (laughs) but i I had connections to people who were connected with spike and all that sort of thing including chris because you know i always got on very well with chris and chris um i brought chris back into smith and jones you know he sort of thing and i'm i was the one who said uh no no the person we need to work with after a couple of suit i can't remember what how many series why don't we get chris in i mean he's such a good and clever performer and so i went and found him brought him back in and we started to and he started appearing in a thing we used to call the late night late night review good evening and welcome to after the real programs have finished Tonight, Christmas. Christmas tree lights twinkling on the shelves in Woolworths. Slade's Christmas message to the Commonwealth. Sleigh bells roasting on an open fire. Irene, what does Christmas mean to you? Well, Wayne, you know, it utterly dismays me. Oh, dear. Yes, because Christmas nowadays is nothing more, really, it's it's nothing more than a sickening, consumer-orientated orgy of greed. Well, yes, well, no, yes, it is if it's organised properly, yes. Yeah, and uh, and that's how we went on then to do um, with John Morton. Uh, you know, this is a bit like comedy trees. And from there, went on to do um, uh, to do. Uh, thing. Anyway, so I feel that you know, despite displacing Chris in not the local news, I feel I did my bit to say come back into the fold because <laughs> he'd been in queue, hadn't he? He'd been yeah. in queue as well. Now, you you did appear in the film version of Pacoon as Colonel Stokes. Yes. Yeah. What was that? What was that? I mean, were you a fan of the book? Had you read the book before? Or yes, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. we were very conscious as kids. Uh, d- d- now there were some people who were dedicated goon fans, mm. and some people were also dedicated to Round the Horn. I still find listening to Around the Horn, you know, like d- d- giant of comedy. It was the mm-hmm. giant of comedy. It was giant of comedy. But the goons had sort of when I started. I worked as radio producers. Yeah. After I left university. And it was interesting to move into an Amelia, into a corridor, which was dominated by ghosts. You know, I mean, it had the people there who were the the chief producers had been in charge of comedy when radio was absolutely the king medium. Mm -hmm. 
television took over. I mean, the goons really preceded television, you see what I mean, in a funny sort of way, when everybody would sit in the room and listen to, to comedy. And and I uh, I am a nostalgia freak for comedy, you know. So I love um, Al Reed, for example. Mm. Sometimes on Radio 4 Extra, they play Al Reed and you listen to it and you go, this is amazing comedy. Nobody does anything quite as brilliant as this. Um, just playing charter characters who don't have a series of jokes, but just a series of attitudes. Mind my car, you know, and you could do a whole model <laughs> of parking a car without actually having any gags in it. It's just, yeah. and they're fabulously funny. <laughs> I met Al Reed, very, 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 very weird guy. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> like I met a lot of comedians because I I did a documentary on this thing, but I never met Spike, and I never met any of the um, uh, any of the Goon Show because they had sort of finished and drifted away by by the time I got to radio. Um, sure, but yeah. with Frankie Howard, you see, so there was a direct connection between Frankie Howard and Beryl Virtues and the, whatever they call themselves, the guys who all who all formed a little sort of United Artists. Associated London uh, Scripts. That's right, yeah. Mm. Amazing. And with Goldman Simpson. And so yeah. all, all those people not only, not only worked together, but knew each other and wrote for each other and were part of a sort of quite a strong comedy coterie, really. Yeah. Amazingly powerful as well. Not powerful in terms of the way that comedians are powerful today because they have huge resources and can make vast amounts of money by filling the O2 and things like that. Nobody would have thought of doing that, but powerful because they were the go-to. And when you look at, say, Goldman and Simpson's output, you know, I mean, you are talking about utter to genius. You know, never seem to put a foot wrong with what they did. No, I'm a huge fan of Steptoe, actually. Yeah. Funny enough, I much prefer Steptoe and Son to Hancock. I love early Hancock. I adore it. And I love the way that what they were doing with Hancock was something which was great, which is sort of based on Jack Benny a little bit, but the idea that he could be doing anything. And at the early, very early Hancock, it's sort of like complete, completely crazy, like big sketches, you know. Yeah. But the, there was a sort of element of all these things swilling around in my upbringing. So I knew about The Goon Show and I'd listened to The Goon Show, but not on records and things like that, but not sort of laying up awake like Prince Charles because I was a different generation. So, yeah. um, uh, well, not laying awake at night trying to, you know, tune into the to the Goon Show. That wasn't that was that that had passed that time. But um, so we knew intensely of them, and I've listened to them again recently. And uh, thank God for Radio Four Extra, eh? Yep. Great to hear Absolutely. them again. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And to listen to the sort of wonderful, the unbelievable, brave chaos that some of those recordings are about, you know, where you can hear things going on and bumping and smashing into things, but you have no idea, but you know that the audience is, the audience is roaring and you're with it completely as well, because they will allow themselves to go off completely yep. mad serial thing. Where I have a huge affinity with uh, Spike is this, getting in charge of a show, which you know you have to continue to make work, mm -hmm write for and feel responsible for for a very long period of time does drive you mad mm. stress level is crazy you know when by the time we came to series 11 of smith and jones you know 
had not become an easy person to work with, really. I mean, it was just, it became, it's just sort of like you you just, you, you want to do new things and you look for new things and you're funny and then you're criticised for doing them. And I remember once we did a sketch towards the end. We, it was an idea that we had for changing the nature of our show a little bit and running sketches through the show, like running sketches. Oh, yes, recurring, yep. Mm -hmm. Sort of recurring ideas. Mm. This one was about somebody bringing in a a, a card, a, a leaving card for somebody in an office. We're sitting in the office and somebody brings in a card and they need us just to write a, a message to somebody who's going on with terms you leave. Yeah. And so that we say, yeah, leave it over there. And then Mel starts reading it and starts reading out these things that people have written, which are extremely funny, you know, and witty. And we we find it rather amazing because, uh, you know, how can they, how does that work out? It's written by the girl on the front desk. She can't be this witty. <laughs> i this joke. <laughs> she must have stolen it from somewhere. Anyway, come on, come, just give me a joke. Give me, just get quickly, write it now. Right, yeah. Uh, and so we start to think about jokes. And then finally we think of a joke and it's there already. <laughs> so you cut and you come back. And gradually it develops with the two of us, you know, then in the room, pacing up and down, drinking coffee. It's 12 o'clock at night. <laughs> funny thing to write because we're the funny, we're supposed to be the funny, responsible for the funny ones. Anyway, we, and then it goes to the next scene where we're sitting with a, a, a huge quantity of 15 writers sitting around, you know, uh, and they're all and they're all throwing ideas in. And it's sort of like a big, like a big meeting for a script meeting, you know, with people coming in with ideas. And we finally decide with these 15 writers on the thing that we're going to put on the card and she comes in and she has the baby in her arms because she's she's back from maternity okay. <laughs> simple, simple structure but the point was it was reviewed by somebody in a newspaper and i try not to i don't read reviews mm. i've realized that life but but i can't remember somebody thrusted in front of me and the reviewer said with no apparent sense of irony this sketch involved 15 people right, trying to write a, uh, a funny line for, Chris, uh, for a leaving girl. Mm. And I remember standing in the room in talk by okay? with no apparent sense of irony. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you, how, I wanted to cross town in a taxi to find this person and say, don't you know what irony is? <laughs> Do you think that I was writing this without the consciousness that a list of names go at the end of Smith and Jones? Are you completely and utterly mad? It's completely ironic because it's self-referential, the whole thing. Yep. There's a sort of absurdity of trying to write things with huge groups of people being yep. brought in to help you write it. And of course, the difference then was I'm not believe I'm not belittling anybody in a freelance show is dependent on finding the really good writers. And of course we did sometimes. You know, we uh, uh, and all the time they had people like Jim Pullen, absolutely brilliant. Paul did Jim Pullen dead now, but we had these amazing writers who would write with us, but we had a lot of cajoling to do because the comedy scene had opened up and the people could find incredible employment writing gags for um have I got news for you? Mm. <laughs> or, or, uh, or, and also they'd all been poached over because we had a big production company. Of course, yeah, yeah. So yeah. the people we were working with who were great, you know, but that's what that's what we wanted. 
we wanted to have a shingle up to try and attract people in, talent in, and say, you know, if you can write brilliant sketches, then you can move on to write other things. And we've got a production company and move sideways, as yeah. Jim did. So he was the genius that helped to put together. Um, uh, uh, they think it's all over and never mind the bu buzzcocks, you know, and he was in the background there. But of course, he's now not ours entirely. Mm. He's not, he's no longer sort of like tied, yes. you know, yes. and we can't offer the same sort of money or retainer or all that thing. John O'Farrell, Mark Burton used to quote with much of them, what great writers they were, you know, just, and there are some people who, a bit like some cartoonists, I think, who just have it running through their DNA. They know how to make a sketch and create, and they know, they know brevity, they know, they know, and it's, and we were, I would spend my time, you know, trying myself to write as much of the show as possible. And I probably wrote about 60% of it, 60, 70%, but it's a big demand when it comes to, I don't know, I try to do the calculation. It's hours and hours of television. I've got, I've got this image of you, you said series 11. Yeah. Walking around, tearing your hair out while Mal's there with a thumbing through a turf digest and smoking a big fat cigar and just letting you get on with it and, and was, was, <laughs> was the burden that all upon you <laughs> <laughs> that is that is how it, have you seen laurel the lauren hardy film i have Stand yeah, yeah yes. well, that, I, I sat there and i was almost you know almost in tears as i was watching it because i was going this is us this yeah. is the, i was the one who was you know we would find out something and mel would say you're sorted out won't you and i'll go yeah, okay, because I was the one who was agitated and wanted it sorted out. So I was the one who was always going to the producers or the people and saying, we can't do this. We've got to change this. No, no, we've got to bring this in now. We need more rehearsal for this. Let's get this thing. And Mel would Mel would um, be, and, and gradually started to focus more. He became a, a commercials director, uh, and oh, yes, uh, which was ironic because it was ironic for me because I'd written all the commercials that we, we won all the awards for in, in Talkback in the early days and everything like that then mel went off and decided he wanted to be a film director so he was going to be a commercials director and uh so he was doing that. i remember i remember sometime in that one of the last series we were sitting on the set waiting to start you know rehearsals during the day and it was about sort of five o'clock at night and we're sitting there and we're just getting ready to to do a final rehearsal of the opening sequence and mel went ah oh, What am I doing here? And I said, what? And he said, ah, I'm supposed to be at an edit. I'm supposed to be an edit for a, for a commercial I'm doing at the moment. And I thought, hmm. Yeah. Mm. It's like being the wife, you see. Mm -hmm. So I've wiped you down. I've got you your script and it's in your hand. And I've spent wiped you down. <laughs> Sticking you on the the script, got everything organised, and you know, spent the last six months trying to sort of cajole other writers into writing things. And here we are sitting with you, and you're you're complaining. Where's my tea? I'm not. I want to be off playing football or something like that. I mean, <laughs> so it is. It's funny, but on the whole, I have to say that's like I don't want to give the impression that that's what it was like all the time. Was Mel was a very easygoing and. There's nothing I remember with more pleasure than uh, sketches arriving, you know, and Mel started to read them and we'd read them round the table and 
uh, me and and him just creasing up <laughs> with love, and I miss that. You know, I miss that yeah. absolute companionship. The absolute companionship of working with Mel, even live, was just fantastic. I mean, but, I mean God damn, you know, you know, we just have to say, and I really apologise to everybody for this. We laughed at exactly the same things. And we knew a script which was made for us when it was in front of us. And we just absolutely adored doing it. Did you hear about that bloke in America? He went for a swim. He got bitten. When he came out, he had this big green lump on the side of his neck. The doctors cut it open. It was full of fish. <laughs> Go on, then. Hit me in the stomach. The Incredible Bullshitting Man. Compliment <laughs> present Jake Thistle as an ordinary man who became a scientific sensation, but he had to be cured. I'm gonna try some word associations, okay? Car. Under 940 in the inside lane. <laughs> Grandfather. When he died, the old town come to his funeral. None of this is true, though, is it, Peter? Go on, then. Hit me in the stomach. Thrills. Stomach. I'll bring you back some moon rock. Europe is currently ablaze with the amazing story of the incredible bullshitting man. There's a bloke in Africa, right? He spent 25 years working on a cure for leprosy. He was on his way to work one morning, left it on a bus. He had to start all over again. <laughs> he hurts, doesn't he? Romance. You want to come round one night and see my bookshelves? <laughs> Solid leather. Bought myself. Do you know how much they cost me? Fortunes. Ten grand if you get them down the warehouse. A man alone. When my uncle had his heart attack, we took him down the hospital. I had to do the x-rays myself. We only had two hearts, didn't we? They said he'd be dead within three weeks. Next year he won Wimbledon. When you're making sketch comedy, mm. it's a bit like writing poetry, I suppose, or or making an album. You know, it's quite there's quite a lot where you go, yeah, it's, it's all, there is an idea here. Um, maybe we should work. And those are the things that became very frustrating when you thought, that, yeah, there's an idea for a sketch here, but... But it's not, not very credible at the moment. It doesn't. There's something wrong. With it. It's you know. And let's work it. And so we'd spend you know, mm. long time working on trying to shine, and and Mel would come in and say, "Well, you can't shine shit. You know, that's just the way it goes." And you go, "Well, yeah, but we've just spent a week trying to shine this shit. <laughs> <laughs> Better to not be so accommodating to people bringing in stuff. Throw it all away and just sit down and write a new sketch." I don't want to. I don't want to embarrass you, Griff. No. But I've, I've jotted down, and I I canvassed some people on social media about particular sketches that they enjoyed from Alasmith and Jones. Yeah. Okay. Because I don't think it gets anywhere near the amount of attention that show that it should do. Really. Well, um, I think what it should do is get a really good edit and be put together. I mean, it's a hell of a lot of material. So six, three hours, thirteen, eleven, thirty. There's something like thirty-three hours of material. Yeah. You yeah. work that out, and thirty-three hours of material. You know, if you if we edited it down into fifteen hours of the very best, you'd have a very good. You'd have a very good show. There's, I mean, I'm not going to run through the whole list, but there's just a couple. The probably the the one, and it was a weekly. I'm not sure was it series four, series five, um, and then there was a Christmas special, the homemade videos. How 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 and everything and all that. Hello, everyone. Do you know where we are now? This is Santa's Grotto. And do you know who I am? I am Father Christmas. Santa. That's 
and he's got a oh, that's Santa, that's me. It's that time of year, isn't it? When mum and dad take three weeks off work to get everything nice and special and give the little nippers the time of their lives. Yeah, and also they get pissed out of their minds and stuff their own goals, and why not? That's what I say. 1,986 years old today. Yes, there are a lot of things that you may not know about Christmas. For example, did you know that the 25th of December? December, that's right, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Well, I know that. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. 25th of December is the birthday of a very special nipper indeed. I didn't know that until my little helper told me just now. Oh, I didn't know that until some geezer told me in a pub yesterday. <laughs> I've always wanted to do a Mercy Dash. A Mercy Dash. I absolutely adored those. Robin um, yeah. Uh, who was that? Robin Triscoll. No. Robin Triscoll, yeah. Yeah. He was, um, he was such a great supporter. He wrote, would write. I mean, and sometimes, you know, Robin was exactly like me. You know, he'd write a sketch and we'd go, this is such a funny idea, Robin. You know, but... Yeah. Can we make it work? And we, you know, we struggled with it and didn't get it there. And then sometimes he hit the, with these these things. And the Christmas special was written by me largely, but uh, on the same basis. But Robin did all the work to get it going in the film. It was great. Well, they were great, weren't they? In they fact, were. when I met Peter Kay, he said that the, he and his family um, watched the Christmas special. <laughs> <laughs> on a regular basis we, you can quote great sections of it i did I, I did and i do and the christmas special just there's so many incredible bits from it but i love and i don't know why what it is i love the bit where pete mccarthy cries brilliant i've always wanted to do a mercy dash <laughs> <laughs> well uh pete mccarthy was another great supporter of the series yeah he died tragically Mm. You know, young, but he was another great, and all the, and then he went off to write travel books and became quite a sort of, you know, celebrity in his own right. But he was always right from the very. Smith and Cayenne were great writers for us as well. Yep. They wrote yep. the original Libby sketch and continued to write brilliant sketches for us. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's, there's so many others. The incredible bullshitting man, of course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> porno and bribe easy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> by Rory McGrath. <laughs> that was a typical Rory thing where he started off and wrote these things and there's some brilliant, there's one thing in it which I always quote, is my absolute favourite bit of Mel because his portrayal of this slightly puzzled inspector was hilarious okay. I mean it was just it was just absolutely Mel at his very, very best with a sort of sense of slight self-importance to him and he arrives they go to Spain to track down a criminal mm -hmm. they walk into the Spanish hotel Oh, we would like a room, please. For two. Yes, please. Bathroom. Uh, yes. Carmen, make up two beds in the bathroom. <laughs> breakfast, sir. It's nearly midnight. I meant in the morning. <laughs> oh, uh, yes, yes, please. Would you like anything in the house, sir? Uh, yes, yes, I'll have cornflakes, bacon and egg, toast and marmalade and a pot of tea. <laughs> and I'll have a kippa. Oh, 
the best of Rory's gags. It was just such a funny idea. That the idea that you know that that it got into his head breakfast and he just ordered breakfast and said, just brilliant, 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 brilliant. And I agree, Porno Bribery is very, very funny mm-hmm. situation things. There were some always some brilliant jokes. Yep. Uh there's Stanley Rogers, the film score composer. Oh, that was written by Smith and Cayenne. That yeah. is a classic. And yes. I'm, I upset them by doing it on stage because they used to do it on stage. And I did it at Peter Cook's memorial uh, with Mel. We did it on stage for a long time. Yeah. And uh, Mel would be in the audience, you see, at the back of the auditorium. And I'd come on to stage and sing the songs uh, when mm-hmm. coming off. And uh, it was just it was just a sheer genius, wasn't it? It was just the most yeah. absurd sort of thing. And it is my probably my favourite bit of, of the whole, whole series, yeah. Mr Rogers, if you'd like to come this way, Mr Attenborough will see you now. Pleasant journey? Uh, I worked with Dickie many years ago, so I feel quite optimistic. I may be old-fashioned, but I've always believed that nothing beats a good tune, and I know Dickie feels the same. Because we can finance the Northern American end of the picture with a negative pickup. But we'll have to... Stanley! Stanley Rogers, how are you, darling? Long time no see. Gentlemen, may I introduce one of the greats, Stanley Rogers. Uh, have you uh, have you read the scripts then? I have, uh, Dickie. I think it's very moving. Thank you, darling. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's obviously it's just uh, rough at the moment, you know. But um, <clears throat> this is the um, the main the main thing. I was walking down the beach one fine day, feeling a little bit randy. <laughs> Coming my way, if it wasn't me old mate Gandhi, Gandhi. <laughs> It wasn't the old mate Gandhi. I was walking down the beach on another day and my toes were getting sandy. Oh, did I see swimming in the sea if it wasn't the old mate Gandhi? Gandhi, Gandhi, if it wasn't the old mate Gandhi. <sighs> Obviously, I'll do with the orchestral arrangement, you know, to sort of beef it up. <laughs> Just actually one thing I, w- I wanted to ask, and it's, it actually goes back to not the, not, not the nine o'clock news. Yeah. Um, you and Mal as the two ninnies. Um, <laughs> well, now we were talking about Monty Python because we mustn't forget the Not Nine O'Clock News also did the Life of Python sketch. That's right, yes. Of the course. bishop, you know, coming on to say that, you know, um, it was based on the on the interviews they'd done about the life of uh, Brian, you know, yeah. with the idea that, uh, that, that Monty Python were sort of beyond, beyond. That was John, that was, that was really written out of, a sort of, and so was the two ninnies. Out of it was, I, I was embarrassed to do the two ninnies. Well, yeah, right. Yeah. Because um, I thought it was Les Majeste. You know, I mean, these were it, you don't go on and knock other great comedians. It seems to me that you're. But anyway, that was the sort of mood of the writers' room was taking the opportunity to have a go at other other com- comics as well. And mm. it's a sort of uh, it would it. It sort of seriously worry me the idea that you were being so, you know, um, disrespectful, maybe yeah, or slightly. cheeky. Yeah. Well, I because I, because I gather that Ronnie Ronnie Corbett was okay with it, but Ronnie Barker was incandescent. I went to a BBC Christmas party, mm. and I think I was the only one there from the news. Mm-hmm. It was an entertainment party, and there was Ronnie Barker. And it was a slightly tough moment because Ronnie Barker was a hero, as you can imagine. Yep. And he gave, you know, 
he was very sort of, you know, magnanimous in a funny sort of way, but he gave me a sort of hug, which was just a tiny bit too violent. Mm. And I remember that thinking, oh, God. And it was very weird, but it was a funny sketch, wasn't it? Yes. It was funny because it was so outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> I knocked the two of them. We're walking up and down upon the spot, 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 because the sodding for the was a drop, drop, drop. You know, that, but it was a little bit, yeah, dangerous. Yeah. Yes, and they love to be dangerous, you see, and perhaps I never was quite dangerous enough, really. Whenever I wrote a dangerous sketch, it would get cut. That was the trouble. But you'd like to, to take your clothes off a lot, didn't you, in sketches? Um, that was where I'd started in Dr. Lycott News, coming on and doing various things. And once you've realised that people will roar with laughter at your body, you have to sort of accept that that's yeah. going <laughs> to be a part of your act. <laughs> um. I want to talk about because one of the things you, you have in common with Spike, and I, well, I'm going to ask you actually because I was very taken by Restoration, the series you did. Was it now 15 years ago? Restoration was that something like that? Um, the Victorian Baths in Manchester. Yeah. Um, yep. But you, one of the buildings that you were looking at restoring was 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 Wilton's um, musical. Yes. Yeah. Now, you, did you know that Spike? Had campaigned for that previously, to. to... Oh, I'm. Uh, I was recently made president of the campaign to save Liverpool Street Station. Yeah, and this is the campaign to save save. Uh, it's called ICAS or something. I can't remember. Uh, Lipcas or something like that. And uh, this was the revival of a committee that was originally um, formed in which Spike Milligan sat. Right. He yeah. was very involved in the idea of of, of the of the sort of conservation movement and mm. had a you know, big support. So, yeah, there is something in common there, which um, I really I salute him for. I watched a film about him. Was it on BBC a while back? Uh, it was a very good film, and it was about partly about his his uh, um, mental health and well being, you know. But but it was a film about his life, and he was very. A generous and rather wonderful man in the way he that he did embrace causes, you know, and uh, yes. well, he could use, you know, his capabilities, you know, to uh, yeah. you know, his celebrity to win people over to things that are important. And it, sometimes in life, I have to admit that I wish I was more famous because only, but only when people say to me, you know, we need to raise money for this. Will you do a show? And I have to say, yeah, but it won't raise you, it won't raise you that much money. <laughs> don't book the O2, you know. Could you bring some of your celebrity friends along? I don't have that many and I can't, I can't impose upon them, but we'll do what we can. I want to mention as well a memory I have. Sorry, this is going all over the place. And no, no, well, that's, that's the way it is, yeah. Uh, I remember seeing an episode of, I think it was Aspel and Company. So yes. it would have been in the 80s. Yes. You you were a guest. Yes. And Beryl Reed was also on oh, the show. Yeah. Now, my memory is that she was pretty blatantly flirting with you, or at least she was being, she was touching your leg and she was cuddling up to you. Is that is that right? Or am I mis misremembering? Remembering yeah, I remember she got on very well. She was very, very sweet. She, oh, she said something like, oh, I like him, and sort of, you know, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but how great to meet Beryl Reed and say that I met Beryl Reed. She was yes. great. She was one of the great. I had a, an extreme. I made a thing called Demo. Yes. Based yes. on 
fight Milligan's diaries, really, mm-hmm. uh, and how he won the war. And I'd, what it was based on was the idea of returning guys who went into the whole sort of, you know, um, windmill world and so on. Uh, and uh, I was in that with Martin Clunes. And uh, it was a sort of nostalgia for the idea of those, because I'd spent a lot of time meeting people like Alfred Marx and working with Alfred Marx and, you know, all those comedians who yep. who had left Ensa. Yep. And essentially, that, that was their footlights. Do you know what I mean? I mean, they were there doing amateur performances in amateur shows across. They'd either been in Ensa or they'd been in, in naffy sort of entertainments like Milligan was. You know, yep. they'd come out into the world thinking, I'm going to go on doing this. I like doing this. I like getting up in front of a, a boozy crowd and getting them going. And so they were a whole generation. And they were new because they weren't variety performers, um, although they moved into the variety world and, and took and took slots at the Wimble, you know, or slots at the where they'd go on and desperately, because they weren't the old school sort of, you know, Max Millers, um, no. they, were just, they were going on to be slightly army humour, you know, army serial humor yep. and and you often read about those things and realize that that the desperate that it just reminds me it reminds me so much of the way that everybody sort of needs to start and which i say which is getting up in front of an audience and people say to me you know how do i how do you become a comedian what would you do what would you advice would you give to young people i say well entering the business now wanted to do comedy shows or do you know and i said well don't do that do just get a group of mates and start doing shows mm. the best way to learn what an audience is going to find funny about you or is to just find the back of a pub and start doing sketch and of course people do that a lot now but it was there was a sort of there, there was a sort of gap and and that's what people need needed to fulfill when we all arrived in bbc radio we actually organized a pub uh and and started doing sort of sketches and comedy things and this was in the early 70s really early 70s before there was any circuit there were no venues to yeah. go yeah so we we hired a room in a pub and we used to and writers andy hamilton i remember doing stuff there you know we'd mm. get up and do turns and things like that just because it keeps the whole thing alive and you you know and if you i remember going to edinburgh and seeing the league of gentlemen i was doing a show at the moment i was just about to do a show with graham garden and uh, i went with a producer and uh, and a writer uh, arthur ellis uh, and we went up to edinburgh and went round shows looking at things yeah and we could find people to be in it with us and we went to see the league of gentlemen and that was exactly you know you were seeing then a group of people who at college had just got together and said we can do some of this. Yeah. And if they, if you have a hit with it, people want you. They'll come to you. You know, it's the sort of idea that, oh, no, oh, no, I'm a trained actor. I want to add, I want to audition to be in a comedy show. That's just sort of like, that's, that's, you have to take the reins yourself. And by taking the reins, it doesn't matter whether you're Spike Milligan, uh, the windmill at Spike Milligan and uh, 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 Harry Seek or whatever, you know, you take the reins, start doing stuff and doing stuff in the back, or even if it's just a jazz band or something, you've got something to offer. Yes. Yeah. Did you, when you did the Young Ones episode, Bambi, as Bambi, yes. um, did you feel, because you're more or less the same age as those guys, really, yes. um, but did you feel slightly elder statesman 
No, 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 no. In fact, what's weird is this. Um, Alexei never wastes uh, an opportunity to say how much he despised those Cambridge people. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure, have you had Alexei on your show? No, not yet. No. I'm sure if you invite him to, he'll have another go. And it's sort of like you go, come on, Alexei, stop this big chip on your shoulder. You know, it's sort of it. And he says, when he was in the early days of going to Edinburgh or something like that, or something, you know, he wanted to avoid falling for the fatal charm of Griff Reese Jones, you know, and, and he did maintain a sort of total, you know, I'm a working man and we're all not Oxbridge footlights stuff. Yeah. As you remember, the whole of Bambi is about footlights, yeah. sort of college, Cambridge versus thing. So... I believe that Alexi was absolutely horrified that they didn't ask me and Mel and uh, to be in it because it was a sort of it was letting down his thing. I can only speak. I can't speak for Alexi. It's probably all a joke. So, but all I all I know was that we were at the time not only it had become a mammoth sort of nationwide hit. Mm. And I remember, oh, what's his name? He went on to become head of everything. I'm getting old. That was the only name I've forgotten, but it'll come to me. The producer, he was working with us as well. Oh, oh Lisa Brown. I think. Oh, Paul, Paul, uh, Paul Jackson. Uh, Paul Jackson. Yeah. Paul Jackson, Paul Jackson yeah. said, we're doing this show. And these, this is so funny. These guys are great. But of course, whenever you're in anything, anybody comes to you and say, you've got to see this. This is so funny. These guys are really great. You are inclined, I'm afraid, to go, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just, mm. <laughs> it's just the natural human reaction. Uh, but of course they were great and it was an amazing show and it did <laughs> they had been kept in the in the canon and repeated and you know and 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 good like Blackadder you know they're 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 set fixed you know entities and they can be rerun and rerun and I, I hope they will be they're great okay Bambi let's hear another so here goes with the start of the 10 what is the record number of marshmallows stuffed up one nostril scumbag Mike uh 604 Toxtas O'Grady USA I told you that, Mike, you bloody cheat! <laughs> Ten points, scumbag, and your question. Who produced the world's stickiest bogey? Talks to Thoe Grady. Correct, five points. You bum back! <laughs> the world's stupidest bottom burp. <laughs> uh, Rick, Britain! <laughs> Correct, five points. It is not! And finally, and finally, for five bonus points to take you into the lead, Who's been tampering with my question cards? It was me! It was me! And you mentioned Blackadder. Now, I believe that there was talk at one point of you and Mel getting roles in, an, in a series of Blackadder. You Black really Adder. are well informed, aren't you? <laughs> but, but, but Mel didn't want to do it. Is that right? They didn't. They didn't. So what, what series would that have been? Was that the second series? I don't think it was to be in the whole series. It was just to go and do a couple of cameos. Right. Okay. But why Mel, didn't Mel? Mel, well, it's difficult. You have to understand. People who know Mel would or knew him intimately and spent time late at night with him would know exactly what that was about, really. Mel was a sort of very... I mean, it was, it, he worked with Rowan. So he went and did, you know, uh, he directed uh, Mr. Bean. So yep. he, he was gone... For, for, well with uh but he was he was fiercely sort of um he also had i said he had the loyalty of a water buffalo you know mel was sort of like sort of like 
he was he was a bit of a kingpin in some some ways and so i think he probably felt i don't want to go and be a supporting actor to to row rowan do you know what I mean? mm. <laughs> yeah. i've been i've been a um uh, i've been in uh, uh, you know on equal terms with rowan i don't suddenly want to go and be sort of you know here, here are those two supporting and i don't know i would have gone um but Mel just suddenly said, "No, I'm not going. I don't want to go and do that shit." You know, and then, sorry, but he was quite. Mel was at some level uh, deeply uninterested in just sort of venturing out and doing other things. It, you know, I mean, he turned down. He was a brilliant actor, Mel, yeah. and turned down more things where you go, "Mel, why are you doing? Go just go and do it. You'd be fantastic." You know, but um, he was just like that. But that's not to say he was in any way a sort of malicious person. No. It was, just the most casual thing you just go but what are they want you to go and play a couple of um sort of regency fops in blackadder yeah well, well, we're going to do that fucking thing <laughs> and it was instantaneous so probably the day after he would say but he would never exercise well anything which was recognizable as regret <laughs> or guilt about anything there was never that wasn't part of his makeup it was just what mood whatever mood he was in did he live every day as if it was his last uh no 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 no, because i don't think he thought there was ever going to be a last day but (laughs) do you still see rowan much uh well i uh, no, i I exchanged had a nice exchange with him a little while while i was trying to tempt him to come down to do happy christmas ipswich which uh, i do every year but he 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 didn't want to get it he didn't want to get up get up and do a show uh so um no. So, but he was really nice and it was really sweet to have a little sort of exchange. But I don't, it's like circles, you know, social circles, things like that. You either move in. I mean, did people, it's a hermetically sealed world, your own show, even for 13 years. Mm. I mean, it's not like this, this sort of comedian circuit. What's interesting is you see John Bishop, um, and Lee and people like that, they all they all know each other. When I was in a play with Lee, you know, they would all come, they'd come. Lee Mack, they'd yeah. Yeah, Lee Mack, everybody would turn up, uh, you mm. know, because um, um, they'd all sort of worked together. But we were in, a, we were in a plastic bag. We were in a sealed unit. And that sealed unit, people we worked with, people we worked with, writers we worked with, we knew every writer on the block, but we didn't, we, you know, we didn't hang out with other comedians. Mm. I have friends who are funny people. And I try and persuade to be involved in things that I do, but Clive Anderson or or uh, uh, Rory McGrath, Jimmy Marvel runs Hattrick, we ran Talk Back and everything like that. But we we weren't, uh, Mel was more likely to hang out with rock and roll stars or Peter Cook or something like that, but he didn't, we didn't, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't a conscious decision. It's just, we didn't do things where we hung out. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the last 20 years, you've been one of the busiest men in terms of, I don't want to say show business, but presenting travel shows. Uh... I do a lot. I doesn't, I'm not quite sure why. I always say that if you're moderately successful at something, uh, you sort of go on until they decide that you're not being, they're not worth doing. If you're a real, if you do a big, big show and you become a big star, then you end up with a sort of, uh, you put down a marker and it's actually quite difficult to do loads and loads of different things. Because partly because you're protecting the marker you put down. Do you know what I mean? I mean yeah. that is your work of genius, and you don't want to you don't want to go off and do things which are sort of you know not particularly connected with that. But I just sometime after we finished 
uh, Smith and Jones. And I really thought it was over. I got in a boat, sailed away. And uh, I was ready to sail around the world. I was going to buy a big boat. Me and my wife were going to sort of not be part of anything. I mean, we're just going to go off. Um, and uh, I got a phone call and said, would you come back and do restoration? You know, and so it's sort of like I established myself as a presenter. And then I became the cat's pyjamas uh, for uh, uh, for that sort of thing. And so they were, everybody wanted to do something. I mean, during the 80s, I was the cat's pyjamas as the presenter of commercials. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. They're like I had to, I had to say I caused offence by saying I'm doing too many. I can't go on doing. It paid for my house, but and I, I have a sort of philosophy which is these things don't happen. They don't happen all the time. Take them while they come. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody is mad enough to say, "Come and do a Holston Pills commercial," and we're going to pay you a lot of money to do it, um, and it'll take a day out of your life, and you go. Yep. Okay. No, I mean, it, in 20 years, nobody would offer me a commercial these days at all. I don't make any money from corporate stuff and all that, but sort of, I became the go-to person to wander around Britain, pointing at things and saying how beautiful. And so I would get offers because it's like commissioners go, and that's faded. That's gone away and moved in a slightly different direction, but has come back again. Have you filmed, you filmed or you've, you filmed a series about Vietnam. Is that right? Or is that, is that in the camera? No, that's, that's going to happen. Oh, right. Basically going in a couple of weeks. Yep. I did a thing about Canada last year yep. and uh, we were doing that. It's funny how time passes and it all happens so quickly. Um, you know, I mean, we were doing that in the tail end of COVID in Canada. It was really complicated to film because we had to wear masks all the time and then take masks off for the actual filming, if you see what I mean. I was, I, I, was, um, I was back in New Zealand in January. Yeah. Switched on the TV a couple of times at random times of the day, and you were on. This sculpture over here is by another New Zealander, Jeff Thompson, of A Lonely Giraffe. It seemed to be 24-hour Griff Reese jones on TV and Z. I don't quite know why. That's but... so funny. Well, because <laughs> I sort of finished with... I had my own production company, and mm. I produced all these things with my own production company. And I went to my, um, to Sarah, who was helping me. And I said, Sarah, look, I've got to tell you this. I've reached the point, in the old days, I used to go in and see commissioners. And they'd be saying, yeah, but I've got an idea. Why don't you do this? And I go, no, I'm not here. I'm here, I'm here as a production, as a producer. You know, and what I want to do is put somebody else in it. Because I saw my fortune being, having lots of different programs with lots of people. And it was almost impossible. I go into a meeting, come out clutching a commission to go and make something about about the National Trust in Wales or the, you know, all the other thing. And I, that's partly why I did so many. And then one day I said, I went into a meeting and I realised that the conversation had changed and they weren't really so interested in me or my propositions anymore. So I had to come back to see Sarah, my partner, and say, look, you know, in business and say, look, I don't think this has got much any more legs is not really going to run anymore. We're not really going to get it. Um, so I threw it away. And I said, I just literally closed it down. I didn't sell it or anything like that. I just said, don't, we're, we're stop, I'm going to stop being this producer. It was taking up too much of my life. Mm-hmm. I was spending 90% of my working life trying to sell ideas which didn't get anywhere. And you don't want to be 90% of your life. In no. It's a nightmare. So I got out of it. But shortly after that, I went on tour to Australia, New Zealand, with a with a, with the uh, uh, when I was out of that, I was free to go on tour myself and start being performer again, which yep. was I, I thought, what am I doing being a producer? I want to be on stage. So I got up on stage and started touring. And I thought after the second show, uh, where was I? Uh, second tour, 
which I'd done. I thought, uh, okay, let's go to Australia and New Zealand. I'm big in Australia and New Zealand. Yes. What I mean by that is that people watch me all the time in these travel shows and I should go and do my show about. So I went to Australia and New Zealand. And while I was over there, I met Essential, a company based in, in Sydney. And they said, oh, would you, you know, I met with uh, people out there. And they said, I said, well, I'm going back on the, on the Pacific, you know, the Indian Pacific because I'm going to Perth and flying back from there. And they said, well, why don't, why don't we film that and just make a programme out of that? So strangely, I said yes, but we couldn't do it because it was too short notice. So I then flew back to make Australia programmes. I flew back, went on to make New Zealand programmes. I went on to make Canada programmes. <laughs> now I'm off to Vietnam. And it's a whole new lease of life. And it's sort of, as you say, it is rather wonderful because I'd like to get back to New Zealand and Australia and do another tour. But it wasn't, it's financially quite difficult. Because you you fly over there, it's expensive to fly over there. It you is. fly everywhere, that's expensive to do. Yeah. You play the seats, and I play bigger venues than I do in England, and got really nice venues. But you know, there are I can't remember. There were, I think we did four gigs in New Zealand. It's not really enough to to justify that. <laughs> <laughs> A long journey. So it was quite complicated. Didn't you didn't you do um, wash some windows of New York skyscrapers? I did. Yes, that was the most terrifying thing. Good God. Ever. That was where you know, we went over. They lowered me over the side of the, of the of the thing, and it wasn't until I was sort of going over that I realised this was. Did, we didn't have any safety lines or anything. We lowered ourselves down. Me and this guy down. We bounced down, and just before I go, he said, "The guy who's in charge, the foreman, Jay mm. Griff, Griff, whatever you do, man, don't, you know, don't put your actual feet on the glass." And I said, "It's all glass." He said, "No, no, no, on the sides. Look there." And the left, they're, they're the sporting things. The glass isn't strong enough for you to actually put your feet on. If you put your feet on, you go, you go for it. Just bounce your way down. Bounce. I put your foot on one, and then push and let go, and you'll slide down, and you get your foot on the other. So we went bouncing. So I had to learn to do this. And what just before I sat on this, he had a. There was no like trolley. I wasn't in a trolley. I was just sitting on a tiny piece of wood. Oh jeez. With two knots in it, and coming down like that. And he said, uh, we were 50 stories up. He said, um, he said, when you sit on it, Griff, you know, I always say to my guys when we start, you gotta get it, don't get it, don't get it on your ass, get it on your legs, because you gotta sit there like you could have a shit. Um, <laughs> I'll still have a shit off the side, because that's the only way you're balanced. I said, funny enough, I'm quite like I really, anyway, so the whole experience, and when I get back up, I said to Harry, the mad director, I said, Harry, that was frightening. That was terrifying. That was frightening. He said, you're telling me. And I said, what do you mean I'm telling you? Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, these are the only guys we can get, you know. I mean, they're not even unionised because they only do they only do the really dangerous buildings and the uh, 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 and, the, and they work unlicensed, you know, because the union guys absolutely refuse to have you anywhere near on the film camera. Oh, right. Oh, I see. So we went out with the cowboys. Oh, God. And, yeah, the ones who have no health and safety in their organisation to help you. That's right, yes. But anyway, well, I think it was quite good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when's, um, what is it? Is it be Griff's Big Vietnam Adventure? Is that what it's? Yeah, when, when's that coming out? those titles at all, because they were, we, we made that up for a series we did in ITV. Um, and I got sacked by ITV, really. And I got cancelled by ITV when Kevin Ligo arrived. So, uh, 
Uh, it's, it's his right to do that. But um, the, th the the unwritten rule you have with ITV is if you make the credit, you make the ratings. You know, you can make a great show, but if it doesn't make the ratings, they're very nice people at ITV that I work with, and they and if you don't make the ratings, they kiss you and say goodbye. Do you know what I mean? They love you, but they won't. Whereas the BBC has all sorts of crazy sort of ideas about why they would keep something, whether it's <laughs> correct for their policies or whatever like that. But the ITV, ITV used to be very straightforward. If you got the figures, you you just you worked for ITV. That was it. Yeah. Kevin Nigo rise and, and Kevin and I have never really seen eye to eye uh, ever since he was a ever since he was a junior sort of runner on comic relief bossing me around so um i uh so anyway i was given the boot but i went to a party i would go to the party and i'd go up to the host and the host says do you know these people and turns i turn around been away and i turn around and there's kevin and uh and peter basilger who's the sort of used to run yep. the mm -hmm. big, big panjandrum was then the big panjandrum in you know on the board and the chairman of itv or something like that and i said yes 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 i do yes i do know i know them both and Peter Bazalgette, not very well informed, said, oh, Griff is one of our biggest stars, biggest stars, one of ITV's top men. And not only that, you know, last night, his new series went out and got the highest figures that that slot has ever had for the last five years. <laughs> I said, I haven't done a new series. And it was the third repeat of Griff's great... British oh, was getting higher figures than they'd had five years. And I turned to Kevin Ligo and said, uh, so Kevin, am I am I still a big uh, star of ITV? And Kevin Ligo said, no, no, no. And actually, I have to say, we got that thing very cheaply as well. Oh. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. All right, mm. so you go through. I, you can't, you know, let the waters close over you, as Peter Finch once said. But I, I'm not a big waters closing over me, man. <laughs> <laughs> Last thing. <clears throat> Last thing, Griff, because I meant I wanted to ask you this right at the beginning. Yeah. Frankie Howard, when yes. when you because you produced his radio show, didn't you, in did. the seventies? Whenever I hear stories of people, younger men working with Frankie Howard in yes. the sixties and seventies and beyond, um, they almost invariably say that he sort of chased them round the room yes. at least once. Did he ever do that with you? He was very naughty, Frank. He yeah. was taught me all the worst habits of being a comedian, really, because I I'm I'm now I'm in. The 70s, I don't think Frank ever made it to his 70s, but or nearly in my 70s. I mean, all the worst habits of sort of expressing exactly what you feel about a script. <laughs> <laughs> you know, taking your own time with you all those things. He was hysteric, he was both hysterical, um, you know, like hysteria and mm. hysterical and very funny. And we had a very it was our favorite year. I mean, I mean, I literally walked down the um, down the steps of the Paris studio and uh, to see uh uh, the Agony Column of the Air, um, B Frank, which was being written by Clive and Jimmy, I think, mm -hmm. maybe Clive and Rory, I can't remember. And uh, uh, and the secretary came running up and she said, uh, she said, oh, Griff, thank God you're here. I said, what? what? And she said, you can produce the programme. And I said, don't, don't be silly, Doris. You know, I'm, I'm the most junior producer in the, in the whole department. I've hardly been allowed to hold a stopwatch yet. And you've been in the, You've been in this department for, well, I, I mean, I'd have been miserably rude, but many years now. And uh, so, you know, far better. Oh, I couldn't possibly do it. I've got to have a produce. All right. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> so I was elevated. It was a Judy Garland moment to being the producer of the Frankie Howard show, which was had a 30-piece orchestra on stage and comedians turning up and everything. It was marvellous. It was like the grand old days of radio. Mm. 
And uh, I went to, uh, I went into the box and they said, you're going to have to go and talk to him. I said, oh, okay. So I went along and he was in the dressing room, the narrator's suite, as it was called. Mm. And he knocked on the door. Yes. Who is it? Mr. Howard, yes. Mm, just a minute. And so there was a sort of clanking, like somebody opening sort of 60 locks on the other side of the door. They opened the door, they were standing in a pair of gold uh, boxer shorts. <laughs> and, and just said, what do you want? Who are you? And I said, I'm the new producer. He said, what happened to the old one? And I said, uh, well, unfortunately, he's had to go to hospital. <laughs> I said, well, I hope nobody thinks it's got anything to do with me. And, uh, and <laughs> And we were off. We were off. We were off on a thing that lasted for two years um, with me. And and the, I've never, it was such a funny time, really, because we were, there were all sorts of shenanigans going on. And really, we should, you know, sue the BBC for the terrible experience. <laughs> we had to experience. But we we were, we'd been in showbiz long enough with and had a lot of friends at one kind. We didn't find his predatory um, sort of behaviour on occasions, especially when we were drunk. We didn't find it anything but hilarious, really. And with that, terrifying mental image of Frankie Howard in a pair of gold boxer shorts. Uh, I'm afraid we must leave Griff and um, and wish him all the best with his forthcoming Vietnam adventures. Thanks for listening. Please follow the show on Twitter. It's at GoonShowPod. We also have a uh, GoonPod Facebook group. Please search for that if you are on that particular social media forum. Um, and look, all 95 plus episodes of GoonPod are available in all the usual places. So if you haven't heard them all, please seek them out. I will see you next week. Take care of yourselves. Bye. <laughs>